This is episode 27 of Hoops Forum, a production of Radius Athletics and Equip Them Out podcast. I'm Tony Miller, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Randy Sherman. Thanks again to our sponsors over at 323 Sports. Right now, they're offering several options on team packs, including one for under $100, which includes a jersey, shorts, tee, and a backpack. To find out more about what they can do for your basketball program, visit 323sports.com, or you can contact a rep at sales at 323sports.com. They'll be sure to do it right for your sports program. Randy, middle of the summer, hot days, things going all right down there in Texas? Heating up, back to school. A lot of uh, coaches I work with who live and coach in Texas are having to having to go back to school and get, get things going. I'm enjoying my last days of summer up here in Minnesota. Well, you had a you had an experience up in Minnesota. You you went to a coaching clinic, the Basketball Immersion Academy, uh, a real live coaching clinic. How was that? It's always fun to get around a lot of other coaches. It's just kind of the timing of it, serendipitous of me being up here at the same time. And you know, I think both of us have have watched a lot of what Chris does and sure. uh, learned a lot from what. So being able to be there in person. This was a unique one. He asked Doug Novak to come. It was a two-day clinic, and so Doug spent most of Monday kind of teaching what they do there at Bethel and their conceptual offense. So it was it was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. So I guess I think back to any time I went to a weekend type clinic like that, whether it was multiple speakers or just like a you know what observing some practices over the weekend of of a of a team or something like that. Uh, I tried to come home and like synthesize what I learned or notes that I took into sort of like, okay, here's a lot of stuff, but like maybe extracting from that, you know, a handful, three, maybe four, just like immediate, just really revelations or things I immediately want to put into my coaching that I, I think are applicable, or maybe three or four like thought provoking things that that I took away that like, hmm, you know, I never thought of that before, or that's a new way of saying that, or so I would ask you, you know, since you spent the weekend, you know, in this learning environment and, um, you know, let's let's run through your your high, your highlight. When you suggested this, I mean, I thought it was a great idea, but it's kind of on those two days, you feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant because mm-hmm. of just everything and the speakers that he brought. Like, it, you know, I think everyone understands, like Chris is thinking it's kind of out of the box. And he, he says all the time, like, I'm trying to stimulate thinking. And mm-hmm. so the speakers that he brought in really stimulated thinking, but it, it went so quickly. Grabbing four was a little bit difficult. We'll see if I picked four that hopefully others will benefit from. You know, the first one for me, anytime you go to a clinic, a lot of times we go to clinics and the traditional clinics, you sit there and I know a lot of coaches think I've heard this before. We already do that. And so they stopped going to clinics. And that was one thing that we talked about while we were there, offering them something to, to think outside the box. And for me, thinking about like terminology and as a teacher, thinking about teaching cues, that's something that I I know that we've mentioned here on this show again. One of the speakers was Max Lefevre. He's a player development guy and the video coordinator for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Young guy, he coached with, uh, he was on staff with Chris Beard at Texas Tech. So like more modern thinking, defensive minded. He talked about defensive concepts. There's a couple of things that I'll come back to something else that he said later on. But this uh, uh, the modern game we know, like staying on corner shooters. I have in the past taught almost going out and like denying a corner shooter. But the idea that you're going to be kind of 60% to the ball mm-hmm. and 100% committed to your man. 
And I think that ties in closely with like your closeouts, which is another thing that we'll come back and talk about. But just like that little little teaching point, I just use that as an example. Yeah. And maybe something that, that a coach can take away, like and use with their team. Just very small that can make a huge difference in arriving on a catch, taking away a shot that could end your season. So I, you know, I think like terminology, we, we've talked about this before, but mm-hmm. like um, some that follow me may have seen when I talked about, I, I tweeted something that Ben Johnson at Minnesota said, you can have all the terminology in the world, but if it confuses your players or slows yeah. down your players thinking, it's not good to, good to have that. Yeah. I think, I think that's the, the terminology piece and like really um, getting better in that arena as a coach is sort of like maybe a a maturation process for a coach that I think is a frontier to definitely explore as a teacher of the game, do some research and reading on the language we use as coaches and what is effective and what is ineffective as far as cueing and giving directives. I read a book recently by Nick Winkleman called The Language of Coaching that really talks about the language we use and and little things like being you know being 60 40 and how that that level of cueing exists on a higher plane as term as player understanding and player retention and you know saying put your left foot right here and your right arm right here and all these internal cues i think if i can come away from a clinic with with you know i used to say it this way but this is better like i'll immediately adopt it with like no procrastination if there's a teaching cue a bit of language uh, uh, an analogy that a coach makes it like teaches something that i've already been teaching but then in more in a enlightening and more sticky fashion you know i don't i don't think about it i don't go like yeah maybe i should uh, should i call it that or should i keep calling it what i used to call it and that's that's how you know when something's a good idea though the speed at which you adopt it the second thing was emphasis on the micro skills of player development. There were several D1 coaches who spoke this past weekend. I know our infatuation with plays and systems, but I really think that the coaches who know anything, they understand, they're understanding the importance of those micro skills, especially in regards to finishing and shooting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just also how important it is for coaches to know how to communicate and teach those to players. Like Doug spent so much time on Monday. He introduced talking about footwork and uh, teaching the, the stride stop and like the details with that and what you do. You may have heard this terminology, but like a protection plan once I get into the paint and mm-hmm. what I do with the ball and, and how that relates to the players that I'm playing next to. And I think that we oftentimes gloss over that. A lot of coaches will gloss over that because they don't necessarily know all the micro details that go into it. So just the necessary point of being a student of the game and and really, again, either understanding terminology and what it actually means or knowing how to teach really micro skills of a stride stop or your footwork or your shooting. or And it goes to the bigger point of being more efficient and more effective with the basketball. And yeah. I think a lot of coaches know about that, but they don't necessarily know how to teach that. Again, I think that the the way I always look at it and encourage the coaches I work with to look at it is a matter of time allocation. You have a budget of minutes with your team in a season. When you spend one of those minutes, it's not replenished. It's gone, right? So how you spend them really matters. And when I see, you know, coaches like Coach Novak or like another one that comes to mind would be like Jay Wright of Villanova, who's tactically speaking, the, the, the complexity of their offense is very low. Like I could learn the Villanova four out motion, I could teach it to a group of junior high boys, like as far as where are four spots, 
when we pass here, we cut there. We said a ball screen either here, or here, and that has a tactically has a low time demand. But for in order for that offense to produce points, the skills my players need to have has a high time demand in order to instill those. So it's just a matter of how you want to allocate your time. If I want to ramp up a bunch of you know tactical complexity, I don't have time given that I'm not that's not going to be replenished, that's not going to be renewed. Uh, once those minutes are gone there, I don't have time to ramp up the, the the skill development piece as much. So I think what we're seeing from a lot of coaches now who are like, let's keep the tactical aspects as far as like the complexity of the intricacy, the things like that that go into learning and memorizing our offense. Let's turn that dial down and then turn the dial up on the skills our players need to run this offense optimally and and then spend our devote our practice time to really branding that into our team. Just paraphrasing something Doug said, perfect example of that was he said, spacing is the easy part. Like I can teach a team how to space. Sure. The real magic is teaching a team how to use space. And what he was saying with that was, is what you were talking about, like the Villanova thing, like the big picture, it's kind of, it's easy to teach that. You can communicate that to your team and teach it pretty well, but like how to actually execute it and the details of it and teaching an individual player how to use space and play with the man next to him. That's where the real magic is. And, you know, I think that again is what's going to separate great coaches from maybe average or even slightly above average coaches. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, that was a good one there. Third one here, this is the, (laughs) this is always one that you bring up on Twitter and then like you post about it and then you just watch it burn closeouts. So the third <laughs> one is, is closeouts and how do you teach closeouts? I would challenge coaches with four things here. Uh, the first one, we only want one way closeouts. So, you know, even in the NBA teams are, this is a little bit different, but like teams are loading to the basketball. They're sitting in the gaps already. And then on the kick out, they're closing out the shooters. Yeah. And some teams, they're they not even teaching stunt anymore. They're literally teaching you stand here in this gap. Again, the kind of that 6100 that we talked about mm-hmm. in the beginning. That's why I wanted to start with that. But they don't want their help defenders momentum at all going towards the basketball. So that's right. that's your one direction. And then going back out on the kick out to their shooter, that would be a two-way closeout. So again, yeah. a really small detail. And I think a lot of coaches kind of think about that and understand that, but I still see a lot of people, they don't want to give up any kind of any kind of drive. So they, they still want to go into the stunting. I don't even stunt anymore. I don't know how you feel about that. But, you know, already being there so that you're able to quickly, that's the half second thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can get away with it a little bit at the high school level. But then as you move up to college and then obviously MBA, those half seconds, tenths of a second make the difference between a made shot and a missed shot. So something to just think about. I don't know what your feelings are about that. Yeah, I, I, this is something with the pressure man to man that's always been baked into it that I that I taught that when a player begins a drive, if I'm a defender in the headlights of that drive, like on the ball side or one pass away, my responsibility is to my check, my man, not to the ball. I, I may shrink that space if I so choose, but my mandate is to not give up a kick three on the ball side, period. So I'm not a big technique and junkie like that. I'm more ex- like externally cueing players of like, here's your assignment. Should you choose to accept it? Like for Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. right? Is like, don't give up a ball side kick three. Accomplish that however you want, but don't. One analogy along the 60-40 line that I use with my players was 
imagine a, the sport of baseball and a player is a player is on first base, a, a, a base runner, and he takes a lead off. So the base runner's on first base. They, they, they've walked or got a single or whatever. They, they, they take a lead off off the, off the first base bag. And they're contemplating stealing second base. And, you know, the pitcher's pitching from the stretch and they've got their move to the first base bag. And you kind of have to judge your lead off on the quality of that move and your speed and things like that. But like, don't get picked off. And, and I don't have responsibility to stop the ball. That's, that's another maybe kind of things that coaches like maybe would be a change for them is that if they penetrate into my gap, I don't have responsibility to start the ball. I'm actually going back to my man and we pull help from the help side. So that's, that's always been something that I taught as sort of baked in component of pressure man to man. It's the second part with this. This is, I think, the part that most coaches don't like. No, no chopping of feet. They're sprinting out to a shooter. They're turning okay. it almost at like that 45 degree angle and stopping. And, you know, I understand the traditional thinking behind this, the choppy feet. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even if you're thinking about it from a perspective of like a kid playing tag, the mechanic, the body mechanics that a kid uses to when you're running after a kid and that kid darts off and you change directions, I don't chop my feet when I'm approaching that player. You know, and the other principle too, where a lot of times in the NBA, they're running them off the line. That's not the only reason why you do this, but mm-hmm. you know, and, and I understand that the high school, even junior high levels, like not everybody can shoot from out there. And so they're not giving up a drive. It's not like everybody's just sprinting out and running a guy off the line and then everybody's having to rotate on the backside. That's, that's not how it works either. So yeah, I feel like there's as much knowing a scouting report if you don't chop your feet as there is in if you do chop your feet. So why am I going to go against the bot, natural body mechanics of what a player is already doing? Yeah, I think the, the, the question around this that I would ask my or encourage coaches to ask themselves is what am I comfortable with giving up or how am I okay with an outcome? I think the real bigger question is like coaches have to sort of get that sort of mentality, especially around coaching defense of like against a good team and a good, a good outfit, a good group. You kind of got to make some decisions about what you're okay with giving up and living with. That's the big question. If you want to chop feet and chop down and stop short, that that's certainly a, a camp that's out there and there's rationale behind it. And I get it. I really do. But the thinking needs to be mature thinking of like, we're doing this because we want to stop that, a drive, and we'll do our best to get a hand up on a, on a shooter and contest it. But, you know, if it goes in, goes in. This last one, two and one, and this is, the video is actually of everything we're talking about, which is why I okay. put it up. But that idea of being like the second shooter off the ground. So if the shooter shoots, then jump up and contest the shot with you with your shot. Absolutely. Um, I know that's one of the things, the feedback I get from coaches is, well, that's just one. They say it's just too hard. And I, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, you drill it just like you drill everything else. And then their second, why we don't do this is they're afraid of, they're afraid of, of fouling. And Max said at the NBA level, we're teaching them you're contesting a right-handed shooter with a right-hand contest. On a left-handed shooter, we're contesting it with our left hand. And Mm -hmm. coaches will say to me then like, well, that's too hard. But those same coaches are the ones that are using the Kobe closeouts or Nash closeouts or like it's all scout. So you're either scout, you're either scouting, scouting this or their handedness scouting. or their shooting yeah. ability. Yeah, you're yeah. scouting, you're scouting something here. I think the thing that the underpinning 
of all of this is the analytics behind the indisputable fact that if if we make them dribble even once, the percentages drop off. So, you know, at the NBA level, like the clips you just showed, that's true. It would I would assume it would it's probably also true at other levels, right? So mm-hmm. so if I can just stand there catch and shoot, I maybe I shoot 39%. But if you if you even if you fly at me and make me bring the ball down and even if I still attempt a three but take a little dribble to the side, my percentage probably drops a percentage point or two. So that's is that worth it? Perhaps it is. The number one teaching point that I use with my teams with pressure man to man and how we evaluated a possession after we'd watched it through and did we switch correctly or is our help and so like to put a bow on a possession is did they dribble to a shot? That if the answer to did they dribble to a shot, not a layup, but a shot, did they dribble to a shot? If if the answer to that question is yes, I'm I'm overall I'm happy as the as the coach is we're putting the cue externally on the opponent. What did they have to do? They had to dribble to a shot. Sometimes that goes in and they they mm-hmm. we run at them and they fake it and they dribble twice and we get a closeout behind the closeout, contest that, and they hit a floater. Okay, but did they dribble to a shot? Yes. Then we probably were true to our objectives. All right. Last thing here was the idea of using constraints with our small-sided games. And I think that, okay. that I mean, that, that's kind of what makes a small-sided game a small-sided game is how you use your constraints. How do you find what a constraint is? Um, a constraint might be a rule placed on the, the, uh, the game, the drill or the game that exists to encourage or discourage an outcome or a behavior. That might be better just to give an example. So like maybe we're playing three on three, but I give a constraint, say three on three, no dribble. So that we're constraining the, the offensive team. We're putting a rule that doesn't exist in the actual game of basketball. You can actually dribble in the game of basketball, but like in this game, we're putting a constraint on a saying you can't dribble. So why do that? Why, why put that constraint on the offense? Well, it's because I'm trying to encourage some sort of behavior. Maybe I'm encouraging, you know, if, if we're playing three on three, there's one player who's got the ball and two players who don't. I'm, I want to encourage them screening for one another. So to, to work on sitting pin downs or cross screens or something like that, or I'm, I'm wanting to encourage cutting we, and passing. So we pass and we cut and we fill and we play off of that and, and, so that'd be an example. I'm, I'm really just trying to accentuate a behavior and get instill a habit that I need a little a rule, a constraint that's above and beyond what exists in the game in its natural state in order to to bring about. I like the way Chris put it. I mean, he, simply put, but anything that can help shape learning. That's really yeah. what you just said. But like what specific skill or idea or tactic or whatever am I trying to achieve by adding in, like you said, the no dribbles. So anything that can help shape learning. Uh, you know, he also said something, uh, you know, to stimulate learning, there must be an advantage. I think a lot of times coaches that maybe aren't as familiar with small-sided games think you're just checking it up with a player standing in front of you, and then you're just randomly playing. And, and that's not that's not really what, what we're referring to here. For me, the one that I pulled up here is a drill that we've I've, I've showed probably before. This is like the adjusted version of a three-on-three closeouts where you kind of whip it around the perimeter, the one more, and then throw it out. You're playing live three-on-three. So you're closing out all those different colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who you're closing out to. So on the pass, X1 is closing out to one. Okay. So I mean, a great small-sided game, one that I know a lot of coaches use. But being more 
be, me being more intentional about the constraints that I use within that. So that drill can yeah. very quickly, even by moving them around the perimeter. So one way that we could change it is where are they, where are they catching this now? So mm -hmm. This is the exact same drill, but I first moved it around the perimeter, but then I could add another constraint into it and say, and I've done this in the past, but again, this is one of those where I feel like if I'm more intentional about it, I can maybe accomplish more in the time I have. Mm -hmm. We need to have a post touch before we have a score. Yeah. Or we need to have a skip pass before we score, or we need to attack the paint before we score, whatever you're trying to work on. Again, like, what are we trying to shape here? How can I adjust this at a constraint? You don't want 45 constraints in your drill, but like, is there something I can take, yeah. take away or add to it that will make this same drill? And that's, I think the big thing, most coaches just want like more drills. Like, man, I want a drill of 75 small sided games. You probably mm -hmm. only need like 10 small sided games but then use a bunch of different constraints and you'll probably be good. Yeah. I call those Swiss army knife drills, meaning mm -hmm. like, you know, it's one tool. It's one thing goes in my pocket, but it, you know, I can do lots of things with it. I can change it up. Like you, you've changed the positioning. And then once it's, once we've go pop, pop, pop and it's live and we've all closed out and we're all checked out, then we're playing with some sort of constraint. One thing I would say, in addition to, I would say put in the same family of constraints would be incentives, constraints and incentives. So mm. what, I, what I often did in addition to not probably overlapping in the same moment, but like in addition to using constraints, like you said, like we got to have a paint touch or we got to have a ball reversal or, you know, a screener has to score or something like that. Whereas what I almost grew to like even more was incentives and disincentives. So like what an example might be, we're just going to, we're going to do this drill, pop, 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 close out. Once it's live, we're going to play normal basketball with no constraints, but the way we score it is incentivizes. So I might say, okay, you can make a basket without getting a paint touch, but we're only going to give you one point for it. But if we paint touch kick, we're going to double the point value of the made shot or something like that, you know, like mm -hmm. to where I'm not having to say, maybe think about, okay, I've got to follow this extra rule that I, you know, that, that almost sometimes feels like it sort of manufactures some awkward like attempts to get that paint touch, you know, like, but like just play as normal, but like, what's going to, you know, we, we just increase this score value on, you know, maybe the behaviors we're wanting to, to see more of. So it's just sort of like praising what you want to see repeated. I like that. I've done that before with like, you know, offensive rebounding. Sure. I've also seen like it taken to the extreme and, and actually worked against us where you have five incentives. It becomes confusing where you have, where you have five constraints and five, five incentives and kids yeah, let's really have know. one overall theme we're trying to really to really accentuate here yeah yeah coaches if you get the opportunity i know everybody thinks that i can get everything that i need online and i'm guilty of that one being with other coaches and interacting with them we've talked about the importance of just kind of stimulating thinking and encouraging one another and just learning from others but for for me i think especially on monday what really helped I've been to Doug Novak's website. I've spent as much time as anybody else has on there. I've listened to his clinic sessions. This is just one example, but I've listened to his clinic sessions about things. We run their offense. I know about it. But to be able to be sit there and hear him talk for an entire day about it, there was a lot of pieces that were filled in. Um, yeah. If you have gone to his website and think that everything you need is right there on his website, it's not. I think just, again, the ability to package everything together like that, uh, that was super helpful. And, and I think it will help 
me and my teaching of, of uh, up at that offense. So, you know, again, just one example, but I wish more coaches took the time to go to those things. You're getting a lot of great crumbs um, and snacks when you yeah, just and, try and to get everything online. You're actually sort of like getting the delivery and maybe just maybe what makes someone a really good coach doesn't get conveyed in a blog post or doesn't get conveyed right. in a video. It gets conveyed like, oh, the way he the way he just touched that player on the back when he said, yeah. sorry, you know, like little things like that or the way he, you know, or, or, or she, the, if it's a female coach, the way they timely interjected that redirective cue or something like the, like little things like that, like you don't get from, you know, a, a, someone sharing a, a, a edited video or a, a blog post or a diagram for sure. So I've been guilty of that. Like I always get asked like, why haven't you done a live event, you know, radius athletics clinic or something live. And I'm like, oh, I can, I can tweet out a link and have more people on that. And, and then I ever would get to get on a plane or in their car and come, but yeah, something I need to think about. <laughs> Before we go, I want to tell you about our sponsors at sideline interactive. If you're looking to increase your school's revenue, improve the span experience, or you just need to upgrade the look of your gym, Sideline Interactive is the leading manufacturer in scoring tables and video display boards for high schools and coaches around the country. To find out more, visit sidelineinteractive.com. Appreciate all of those who joined us this week. If you missed any part of the live show, you can go back and watch any part of that on the Radius Athletics YouTube page, or you can listen to the interview. Just search a quick timeout podcast and you'll find audio version of the show. I'm Tony Miller. He's Randy Sherman. We'll talk to you again next week.